Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Limon McHenry, the co-author of The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, Exposing the Crisis of Credibility in Clinical Research, an expose of the corruption of medicine by the pharmaceutical industry at every level, from exploiting the vulnerable destitutes for drug testing, through manipulation of research data, to disease mongering, and promoting drugs that do more harm than good. Authors, Professor John Giuridini and Dr. Limon McHenry, made critical contributions to exposing the scientific misconduct in two infamous trials of antidepressants. Ghost-written publications of these trials were highly influential in prescription of paroxetine, Paxil, and citalopram, Celexa, in pediatric and adolescent depression. Yet both trials, Glasgow-Smith-Klein's paroxetine study, 329 and Forest Laboratories Citalopram study CIT-MD-18 seriously misinterpreted the efficacy and safety data. The illusion of evidence-based medicine provides a detailed account of these studies and argues that medicine desperately needs to re-evaluate its relationship with the pharmaceutical industry without a basis for independent evaluation of the results of randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. There can be no confidence in evidence-based medicine. Science demands rigorous critical examination and especially severe testing of hypotheses to function properly. But this is exactly what is lacking in academic. It is my pleasure to welcome Lehman uh, here today. So welcome. Thank you, Galina. I'm very pleased with the opportunity to speak to you. That's great. So I would like to start by asking, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Well, uh, I was working at a law firm on the day when suddenly uh, we were told to leave the building and never come back. So it was rather frightening. It was a bit like a hurricane coming and uh, it disrupted uh, things terribly and For the longest time, I had trouble adjusting to the new world order. And uh, I must say that I lost concentration. I lost motivation for the longest time and had difficulty retooling to work at home and not be, you know, within the context of uh, the interactions with my colleagues, which which was very important for the work. So the main trouble for me was just a kind of 
uh, question about you know, what are we dealing with here? Is this is this the, the bubonic plague? Uh, is this something that's going to be long lasting, or is it something that's going to be over with relatively soon? And um, it was rather frightening. So finally, um, we got got on track and and learned how to adapt to the situation. Yes, and what you describe, the experiences are probably quite typical for uh, many people who uh, sort of went through this kind of fire drill <laughs> adjustment of leaving the office and never coming back. So ha- um, do you have any um, tips on how to address uh, those issues that you had, like concentration? Well, I think for, for the longest time, there was just a sense that there was a loss of the future. Like, like what is worth doing? now, given that the mm. world has radically changed. Uh, and it, it took me a while to, to just adjust to that, to that idea that you know, there is a future. Uh, there's, there's just um, a problem here of adaption and how one responds to it and regains a certain sense of, of uh, motivation. But, but I must say, I, I have not recovered it 100%. Uh, I'm only operating, so to speak, at about something like 60%, maybe. And really appreciate your, your honesty about that, uh, because it's important uh, for us to talk about it, that uh, indeed we're still in it, isn't it? It's not finished yet, the whole dire situation. Yeah, right. we're, we're still in the middle of it and still trying to figure out what it's all about and make sense of the, of the science and try to make sense of, uh, if you like, weighing the um, the risk of the disease versus the risk of the vaccine. Yes, for sure. So you mentioned earlier that you were at the law firm. So yes. can you tell us about your background? What do you do? Yes, well, I, my background is mainly in philosophy and I'm specialized in the philosophy of science. I uh, did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And I mainly worked in uh, that area, philosophy, science, and specifically philosophy of physics. And it was just pure chance and dumb luck that I happened to meet uh, a lawyer called Skip Murgatroyd, oddly enough, uh, from surfing in Malibu, California. And he was working on these very important uh, legal cases relating to um, the corruption of the pharmaceutical industry and um, warning people about the dangers of drugs that weren't properly tested. Uh, And I slowly became convinced that I needed to change my career path and get involved in the real world. And so I began working with Skip Murgatroyd for a Los Angeles law, law firm called Baum, Headland, Aristi, and Goldman. Uh, that was 17 years ago. So today I'm a research consultant for that law firm. And uh, so this book that we're talking about today c- came about very slowly as a result of a collaboration with uh, experts that the law firm hired to um, do the investigations into the science. So you you mentioned that you were academic researcher before uh, in uh, philosophy of science. 
Yes, I mean, I still am um, Professor Emeritus mm-hmm. at California State University, Northridge, uh, and I still lecture. I give a continuing medication, uh, continuing medical education lectures, what's called Grand Rounds, uh, and I also do a little bit of lecturing at various universities, um, but for the most part, I'm retired from that position at California State University, and I'm now pretty much devoting myself to uh, research at the law firm. This is really interesting what you described, how you got interested in uh, um, uh, the medical field itself, that you met somebody who was surfing. So can you maybe give us give us um, uh, a few tips for young career research uh, scientists who should be open to open to possibilities? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting uh, question because you know you can sort of set your mind uh, in a groove, so to speak. You know that this is my career path and this is what I want to do in my life, uh, and and um, and if you're a little bit too sort of committed to that and a little bit too entrenched in it, you might miss a real opportunity here to get involved in something uh, that you didn't imagine was a part of your career path at one point. But it turns out, you know, it could open doors and become something much more sort of influential and powerful than what you had originally imagined. It's a great message to reinforce. So thank you for that. (laughs) So as you mentioned, uh, you got interested in this uh, medical field. So how did you come about to writing the book? Why is was yeah. this the time for this? Well, it developed, as I said, it developed very slowly in a period of 17 years. Um, and I began by looking at um, the, uh, cases of um, corruption of science with... Um, Um, psychiatric drugs, in particular antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs. Uh, So we began there with problems uh, dealing with uh, severe withdrawal that patients were having, uh, and those were class action lawsuits. Then we were looking at these cases of um, SSRI-induced suicidality, There were a number of very disturbing cases where both adults and adolescents had committed suicide uh, shortly after antidepressant therapy. Uh, And and so we engaged a lot of leading experts in the world uh, on these matters. One of them is uh, Professor David Healy, um, who at the time was at the University in Wales, uh, and also uh, Dr. John Giardini, who's a professor at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Um, So slowly I became acquainted with these experts and their work. And over a period of time, we published various papers uh, with extreme difficulty, by the way, in some of the medical and bioethics journals. And Dr. Giardini and I at some point decided that we had a whole book here. Interesting. And um, did you feel a bit like an outsider looking in, perhaps? 
Well, a bit. That's true. Uh, and and the book that Dr. Giardini and I wrote uh, has the distinction of a, a certain point of view. It's a work uh, that that investigates the science and requires scientific expertise uh, to go into the details of just exactly how these clinical trials were manipulated, uh, and that really did rely on the expertise of Dr. Giardini. Uh, the other part of the book is, is my perspective, which comes from the discipline of philosophy of science. So we looked at a uh, 20th century a philosopher called Karl Popper uh, as a kind of lens through which to see what had gone wrong with the science and, and how to correct it. So it's both a work in um, investigation of science and philosophy. Uh, can you expand a little bit about Karl uh, Popper, please? <laughs> Absolutely, I'd love to. Uh, he's one of my mm -hmm. favorite philosophers, and I think he's actually the, one of the most powerful uh, philosophers of science. Popper... Uh, wrote two very famous books. One is called The Logic of Scientific Discovery, in which his problem is to distinguish between science and pseudoscience. What is it that um, makes science science? What are the distinctive features of science? Uh, and uh, also the other book he wrote was The Open Society and Its Enemies, which is, if you, if you like, the... Uh, political context in which the integrity of science flourishes. So, so Popper is basically asking the question, you know, what kind of government would best support uh, science as opposed to, you know, other forms of government uh, that would, that would corrupt science to ideological aims or, or what have you. And so it's pretty clear that Popper thinks the open democratic society is the best one for the integrity of science to function. Uh, so Popper's is often sort of caricatured by philosophers as a man who had only one idea. Now, that's rather amusing because the reply to that is then, well, if he had only one idea, uh, then that's one more than a lot of other philosophers have had. But <laughs> the point is that Popper the whole sort of uh, framework of Popper's philosophy is based on what he calls falsification. And Popper's idea is that what serious science does is it attempts to show that a hypothesis is false by designing the most rigorous experiment that you can. So put it this way, you know, you've got an idea, you've got a hypothesis, you put it out there, and now you try to knock it down the best you can with a very rigorously designed experiment. Now, if the experiment proves negative, your hypothesis is no good, and it's back to the drawing board. You abandon your hypothesis. This is what good science is, and you put forward another conjecture to be tested. If your hypothesis survives the test, it does not mean that you have arrived at truth. It does not say that you have a positive result. For Popper, it only says that you have a tentatively corroborated 
uh, hypothesis. And if it continues to survive serious attempts to knock it down, you've got a certain kind of reliability in that, but you certainly don't want to say that you have truth or that you have confirmation. So what Popper does is replaces the idea of confirmation with corroboration. Now, this is sort of counterintuitive in many ways, because I suppose a lot of people think, you know, that the march of science goes on confirming, 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 and what we get is a bigger, bigger body of truth. But all we have to do is look at the history of science to see that that's very problematic, that we have scientific revolutions where we start all over again and where the, all of our previous assumptions in the previous paradigm are now abandoned and we move on to another epoch, if you like, of scientific investigation. Yeah, and you pointed out here to the crux of the matter of, in science, how do we know what we know? And mm. vice versa, how do we know what we don't know? So in your opinion, is the falsification uh, method the best there is for us, or are there other alternatives? Well, there, there are, of course, um, uh, philosophers that disagree with Popper, philosophers and scientists, and, and, and those who believe, mm -hmm. for example, that we can get some degree of confirmation. Uh, and they are mostly uh, take a kind of Bayesian sort of methodology which is very much seen as, as sort of the opposite of, of Popper's approach. But the reason why I think Popper is so important in this case is because what I started to see right at the very beginning when, when I was working at the law firm with my mentor, Skip Murgatroyd, um, I, was, I was seeing this corruption of science, and it was very alarming to me uh, because... I had no idea that what was being published in the medical journals was, was so manipulated by the pharmaceutical industry uh, and, and, that this, and that doctors were relying upon this information to make medical decisions and, and to prescribe drugs to their patients. You know, and so it seemed to me that there was this great pollution uh, and, and that this was a conspiracy to conceal this And, and I started to sort of see that, you know, the main problem here is they're not taking Popper seriously. Hmm. So uh, with your wealth of expertise in the philosophy of science, perhaps all of this was a little bit easier for you to see and distinguish. So do you think that basic scientists maybe need more training in the philosophy of science? Well, not, not necessarily. I mean, I think probably a lot of the uh, mm. doctors and researchers that would read my book might skip right over the chapter on Popper because they don't really sort of see that as relevant to their daily practice. Uh, but what I think very generally one might say is that we need to adopt a much more critical stance with regard to uh, what's being published in the medical journals and what is being presented at medical conferences and what appears in even the clinical guidelines for prescribing drugs. So, so I think that um, in this connection, you know, I'm, as we say in the book, Dr. Giardini and I, we don't really need Popper to make our case. All we need hmm. is to just point out how basic norms of science are being violated here. 
But I just thought that Popper, with his whole sort of view about uh, how does how can science be relied upon? How can we have an integrity of science in a capitalistic economy where uh, the profit motive of the manufacturers of drugs is seriously interfering with our goal to have reliability in, in scientific testing? Excellent. So you set up the scene of where we should be and how perhaps we should be able to approach um, all of these questions. So if we just start with a bit of a scientific uh, background. So what is exactly evidence-based medicine and is it different from science-based medicine? Yes, well, I'm not quite sure what science-based medicine is. Um, I've never, never actually heard that term. But my guess is that um, really they're the same um, if what we're asking is what is the scientific foundation of medicine? And evidence-based medicine was a paradigm uh, based on an epistemological hierarchy of what mm -hmm. is the most reliable evidence and what is the least reliable evidence. And so it, it, these, these typically form these kinds of pyramids. Uh, and this came about uh, in the late 1990s. And a lot of people sort of are a bit puzzled about this because they sort of say, well, well uh, if we've only had evidence-based medicine since the 1990s, what did we have before? Uh, okay, so it was just a sort of lots of different sort of evidence from different sources that wasn't really systematized into this kind of hierarchy where at the top of the hierarchy, we have the randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials, which are our most trustworthy scientific evidence, then various forms of other kinds of testing, which are not randomized placebo-controlled, observation studies, uh, retrospective studies, what are called naturalistic studies, comparative studies, uh, and then at the bottom, you have the judgments of expert um, researchers, um, um, uh, mechanistic reasoning, uh, consensus formed from various kinds of committees. And uh, so there you go. There's the kind of hierarchy of evidence-based medicine. Yeah, and uh, in general, uh, I suppose the scientific science-based medicine um, it has the known mechanism um, which is being targeted, but evidence in evidence-based medicine, sometimes we don't need to know precise mechanism as long as it works, right? I see, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, notice that the uh, mechanistic reasoning is, is a sort of at the bottom of the hierarchy of evidence-based medicine. In other words, what you're doing there is just reasoning about cause and effect on the basis of various hypotheses proposed as mechanisms. And that's considered to be considerably lower in reliability mm -hmm. uh, um, compared to the results you get from the placebo-controlled trials. So can you outline the general uh, process of how medicine uh, will get from from the bench, bench to bedside or academic research to consumer? Right. Well, 
I think what you have here is um, when, you, when you ask the question about academic research, um, I presume mm-hmm. what you're thinking about is, you know, researchers at universities and at university uh, hospitals and medical centers where you have um, uh, re- researchers working out all sorts of problems in uh, medical research. Uh, but in terms of getting drugs to the market, it's more like a kind of partnership between the pharmaceutical industry and university research. And so very often that can either begin by some kind of proposal for the development of a new drug coming from the academic side, or it can come from the pharmaceutical industry uh, reaching out to uh, uh, create these partnerships with the academics. However, in mm-hmm. my view, f- from what I've seen from reading these thousands and thousands of confidential pharmaceutical industry documents, is that the marketing departments of the pharmaceutical industries are co-opting academics uh, essentially to become uh, product-loyal promoters of their products, and in doing so, uh, end up corrupting the academic side of this partnership. So who are the main players and stakeholders on uh, at each stage, and what sort of powers do they have? So yeah. as you mentioned, uh, why the pharmaceutical industry has such power to influence mm. uh, those earlier earlier stages? Well, mainly because they're the ones that have the money. I mean, that's very simple. You mm. know, it's, it's um, follow the money here. Uh, but in terms of identifying the uh, stakeholders, it's, it's pretty clear that there are a number of players here uh, that, that uh, create this, what, what I would call the systemic corruption uh, in the pipeline uh, sort of consider the normal sort of uh, uncorrupted state of the scientific pipeline. And now what you've got is these stakeholders who are manipulating the process at various levels. Uh, and, who, well, who are they? Well, they're, okay, they're the mainly the pharmaceutical industry marketing departments. They are <laughs> medical communications companies. And medical communications companies were basically uh, public relations companies that specialize in communications of medicine. So they have an enormous stake in this because they are engaged by the pharmaceutical marketing companies to work out all of the logistics of getting their message out there to the public, uh, getting their key messages to prescribing doctors and to patients. Uh, And then you also have um, public relations companies, PR companies that do just a lot of the work to to, um, market the message, you know, especially when it comes to a new drug on the market that they're trying to trying to make into a blockbuster, you know, namely sort of $2 million a year Mm. in sales. Um, 
And in the United States, it's particularly bad because we have something here that you don't have in the rest of the world, apart from New Zealand, and that is uh, advertising prescription drugs on television, which is called direct-to-consumer advertising. Um, So uh, in addition to that, you also have universities and academics at universities who are trying to bring in external money into their universities by forming these partnerships with the uh, um, pharmaceutical companies. And one more stakeholder would be, you know, the consortium of all of these pharmaceutical companies together, which are lobbying the government to get legislation that's favorable to them. Mm. And that lobbying you know they are definitely stakeholders here, right? This, this uh, that that maintain the corrupt system. So, where do you see the possible intervention can be implemented? Well, in the book that Dr. Giardini and I have written, at the very in the very last chapter, we we try to look at solutions to the problem when we try to offer uh, what we believe would be the best way. Of, of reversing the course of, um, of what what has essentially happened, I think, in something like the past 30 years, um, the power of modern marketing and the ways in which they use their vast amounts of money to influence and corrupt the system. And uh, so what we do, first of all, is we go through various uh, attempts to address the problem that are like piecemeal solutions. Uh, they only sort of um, offer something that that is patchwork, if you like. Uh, we're trying to go to the core of the problem. Where is the essence uh, of the of the corruption? And we think it's very simple. It's that it's that the manufacturers of pharmaceuticals should not be allowed to test their own products. That that the that the scientific testing must be done independently of of the industry that's produced these drugs, and that that has to become a part of uh, a university system and government working cooperatively to restore the integrity of science. So you point uh, point to this as an essence, as a core. But uh, looking at the modularity of the system, can't things go wrong at different stages? That is a that is a considerable part of the problem in the sense that, for example, uh, the medical journals are not really enforcing their own policies as strictly as they could. So there's there's a player right there. There's there's one sort of major defect in the system, right? That, that medical journals have become too dependent upon pharmaceutical industry money in advertising, in the reprint revenue that they receive from publishing these articles, in open access fees uh, for, in publishing these articles. And and they have seriously compromised uh, their own scientific integrity in, in this way. 
All right, so the medical journals are one example. They could enforce their policies much more strictly. So Dr. Giardini and I, when we discovered the extent to which these, these clinical trials that had been produced from uh, GlaxoSmithKline and Forest Laboratories had, had, had corrupted these uh, trials and, and published in the medical journals uh, extremely misleading um, information about the efficacy and safety of these drugs. We went to the medical journals uh, and, and we went to the individuals who put their names on these ghost-written papers. They hadn't even mm. written the papers. They hadn't even investigated the data, the raw data. Uh, and we wrote to them individually and, and asked them to, to retract their paper. We asked the medical journals to retract the paper. Uh, and we, we basically got no reply. So what we did in revenge was we published all of these letters in the appendix to the book. Yeah, and as you as you did this in-depth investigation, so do you think it's a systematic failure that allows for these uh, sort of behaviors? Sorry, I didn't hear you. I need to repeat that that question. So, um, looking at the really in-depth investigation that you've performed, do you think the systematic failure is uh, causing all of these um, even unethical behaviors of the scientists? Yes. Well, here's what I think is really going on. Um, Mm. The medical journals and the key opinion leaders who are the academics who sold their souls to put their names on these ghost-written papers have all been advised by legal counsel not to say a word. And the reason is very simple, that if they were to admit that they were misled by the pharmaceutical companies, if they were to admit that these journal articles um have corrupted the data and misrepresented the data, they would just open themselves up to the possibility of new litigation. I think that that's what's holding them back more than anything else. Because I think that some of these people, if you talk to them at a cocktail party, they would say, oh, yes, this is horrible. I'm terribly embarrassed that that this occurred, uh, that, that my university hasn't hasn't taken a position on this or that I'm not able now uh, to, to, to speak out about what actually happened and that I deeply regret what has happened. That's my, that's my sense of what's really going on. Yeah, it's really interesting. And especially when you look at that such pressure can be actually put on the individuals that sometimes mm. perhaps they don't even have uh, other way to do it so uh, from your perspective uh, how can it be improved if there are such huge forces Mm. well i mean two things here i think you know part of the reason why we wrote this book was to get across to um young researchers um people who are thinking about medical careers people who are thinking about um, uh, becoming 
doctors and researchers uh, to be very careful about dancing with the devil, that getting involved with pharmaceutical industry, um, they flatter you, they draw mm. you in very slowly, and then all of a sudden you're you find that you have compromised your own integrity. So just next week, I will be giving lectures at Temple University Medical School in Philadelphia on the uh, two clinical trials that we discuss in the book uh, about how, how this happened and, and how badly these uh, clinical trials misrepresented the data to get across to very young um, uh, doctors uh, a warning about what not to do. So that's so one. I'm at and, these... and, then the, and then the other, you know, then the other uh, um, corrective, if you like, is it's, it's got it's something basically wrong with our political system, which was where Popper comes back in again. Uh, how can um, science be protected in a capitalistic economy. So are there um, signs that we should be looking for to, to know what's going on? Because quite often, especially with the clinical trials, you go yes. to the registered page yes. and then you see no results after that. So what are we, what we need to be looking for? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, and here's the problem. I mean, the, the problem is that there's what's available um, and what's available is what's published in the medical journals and what is presented at medical conferences and what appears in continuing medical education and in the clinical guidelines. So this is what doctors have access to. Uh, now, the problem is, in a certain sense, that that's all a construction that's, that's, that's largely shaped by the pharmaceutical industry marketing. They control that. They control that message. It's a, think of it as a loud megaphone. Uh, now, behind all of that is the data that is being generated from the clinical trials, and that data is their proprietary information. In other words, they con conceal that data very carefully and they never release it uh, unless they're forced to uh, from, let's say, a settlement and litigation, which, which happened in the case of Study 329 that allowed a reanalysis of the clinical trial by getting to the raw data. Now, now here's the problem is that who has access to this data? Well, so here's a very good sort of instance of this. Um, a researcher at the University of Maryland called Peter Doshi uh, came up with this idea of the RIAT, R-I-A-T, which is Restoring Abandoned and Invisible Trials. And, and the idea was to challenge the pharmaceutical industry to produce the raw data so that it could be analyzed by an independent researchers to determine whether or not the reporting of the clinical trials in the medical journals was accurate or not. And, and this is one of the most brilliant um, uh, steps forward, if you like, in trying to sort of restore the system. 
Now, in response to Professor Doshi, uh, there are very, very limited cases here where, where he has been successful in doing so. And one of them was one of the trials that, that's the subject of my book with Dr. Giardini, which is the famous study 329 of, of, of antidepressant use in children and adolescents. Uh, but uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry, so sort of looking back in retrospect, and said, well, that didn't go very well for us, did it? Uh, so why, why should we cooperate mm. with, this, with this exercise? And so, so we have very limited success in that regard. But, you know, there is a very good example of, of uh, you know, a challenge to them to, to, to get to the raw data. Uh, you know, and very much the same sort of thing is going on right now with regard to the vaccines that are being produced. Uh, can we really trust um, the uh, reliability of the information that's being uh, uh, presented to the public? Uh, we want to see the raw data here. When can we get to that raw data? And we're not going to get it anytime soon. That's an excellent point uh, about the data accessibility and uh, transparency, but also usability, because you not all data is the same. Sometimes mm. you just cannot uh, make any sense. But that's given the trial was even completed. So what do we do about the um, trials which have been stopped and no data have been actually given? And what about the file drawer effect, uh, right. something like negative, uh, negative um, results? Yes, yes, very good point. Um, the, so the file, file draw phenomenon is this idea that, in, at least in the United States, the FDA requires two uh, positive trials. Um, okay, so leaving aside the moment, uh, you know, the, the difficulty with positive, let's just say that, you know, you have a p-value that's statistically significant in this case, which constitutes what the FDA considers to be a positive trial. Now, the pharmaceutical uh, company can do these uh, trials over and over and over and get all sorts of negative results, uh, but they only have to have two to get a license for the drugs. So they can just file away all of these negative trials. Uh, by and large, some of them get published, but by and large, most of them do not get published. So we're getting a very distorted picture of uh, the the testing for the drug here. I mean, so 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 yeah, uh, and and in the case of uh, citalopram, the citalopram trial that's discussed in our book, uh, what we found was that forest laboratories um, had what they thought was one positive trial of escitalopram, uh, and they needed one more. So the FDA allowed them to uh, use a second trial, which was citalopram, uh, to allow them to, to get the license for the drug. But it turns out that the trial for citalopram was terribly corrupted, that nine patients in the trial became unblinded, and as a result, mm. result of that unblinding, the, um, the trial was a failure. Uh, that that these, the p-value for statistical significance here did not reach that threshold. But when they realized that they weren't going to have two trials that were 
supposedly positive, they included the data from the unblighted patients in a statistical analysis so that they could reach that p-value. And the FDA knew this, and they allowed them to have a license for the drug anyway. So, you know, here's where we have, again, the sort of political problem, if you like, at the larger level of of, uh, who is is permitting these sorts of things to, to go on. So in your view, what are implications for the patients then? Yes, very good question. You know, what is what is it all about here? Well, I think I think mm. there there are two things. One is that evidence-based medicine is an illusion, which is the title of the book. That it's a one of the greatest ideas in medicine, yet it isn't allowed to function properly because something like 90% of the clinical trials are conducted by the pharmaceutical industry testing their own products. So evidence-based medicine is an ideal we should aspire to, and we have to aspire to that by demanding more rigorous science and access to the data. As far as patients are concerned, this sends a message of deep skepticism to anybody considering going on a drug that that the drugs that have been produced more recently have been done so through this heavy marketing uh, and possibly manipulation from the um, um, pharmaceutical company that's produced the drug. And, and, and if you like, we're sort of living on the scientific capital of something like 30 years ago, where, where many of the tried and true drugs were the ones that were were uh, tested uh, with some degree of honesty way back when. Uh, so we always have to weigh the risk and the benefit. Now, the question is, can you genuinely weigh the risk and the benefit given that you're getting a distorted uh, information about the, the the drug? So again, there's this, there's a, there's a an issue here of being very careful and being very skeptical about about approaching uh, the medicines that you take. If we can flip it over uh, for a bit, so maybe you can give an example of a model uh, trial that has been done. Do you have any idea of these? Um, you mean you mean one that's uncorrupted? Yes, like the yes. perfect trial. Or yeah, perfect, can you describe how it would be how it would well, be from your perspective? Yes, indeed. I mean there are look there, there are lots of uh, of clinical trials that are are being done by government and by universities which are not being funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and mm. and uh, that doesn't mean that they're they're completely flawless because you've got other problems here too. You you know, you've got the problem of, of the ambitions of scientists trying to sort of advance themselves, you know, and fudging data or fabricating data in all sorts of all sorts of ways. Uh, so you always have to be be on guard uh, for that. But uh, I mean, I mean, th- so th- this is not to say that there's nothing of any value in the medical journals uh, or, or that all of it is corrupted. Uh, this is not to say that there aren't clinical trials that are conducted with honesty, integrity. 
uh, but rather that the fake science and the genuine science are produced to look exactly the same and that the pharmaceutical industry is superbly programmed to do that. Now there's the trick. How do we distinguish between the genuine and the sham? And in my particular case, the only way that I've come about knowing that is by reading all of these thousands and thousands of confidential documents that I see at the law firm. And, and without that, um, I, I, you know, I would be back to this kind of very naive position that I was 17 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, what I really appreciated about the book is that it's sort of, it is quite thought provoking, which kind of puts you in this uncomfortable place where you have to question your beliefs and uh, sort of the way you understand how things are being done. Right. So I really appreciate that um, uh, side of it. So, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. And can you describe what are you currently working on? Well, thank you. Yes, I've got two projects that I'm working on just now. Um, I'm part of a, a research team at the University of Edinburgh called um, uh, um, Living Organisms and Their Choices. And it's a group of philosophers and scientists who are interested in the question of uh, to what degree is their purpose in nature in biological organisms. And this runs very much contrary to the orthodox um, materialistic and mechanistic view of biology. Um, it goes all the way back to, if you like, Aristotle, who thought that nature was essentially teleological, that is sort of goal-driven. Goal so goals were, were regarded as uh, unscientific, any kind of postulation uh, of teleology and nature, you know, by the two scientific revolutions, um, the um, Copernican revolution and the Darwinian revolution, but we're sort of going back to sort of look at this more carefully with, uh, you know, so is there actually empirical evidence for any kind of uh, postulation of choice of goals in nature? So that's the one project I'm working on. And then uh, at the law firm, we are currently looking at the um, a human papillomavirus vaccine, Gardasil. And I'm working with lawyers and scientists on this project because what we've discovered is that there are many girls who around the world who were put on uh, this vaccine and have discovered uh, that they've that got autoimmune disorders and many of them are seriously injured. And, and so we're investigating, uh, if you like, the causal mechanisms here in, in terms of uh, harm that is done by, by this vaccine. And that will take a long time to sort out. And, and, but what we're finding is essentially the same thing that we have found with the drugs that we've investigated, that you have to view this through the lens of the pharmaceutical marketing, and therein lies the problem that there's lots of room there for manipulation of the science. It's really interesting. So similar mechanisms are at play? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. There, there, there. This, mm. There's the same problem with uh, how the trials were conducted. Um, so let me just give you an example of that. In, in the case of Gardasil, Gardasil has uh, an, an adjuvant which contains aluminum, and the aluminum is that which sort of kickstarts the immune system. Now, when they tested mm. Gardasil, they, t- they didn't test it against a true saline placebo. They tested it against a placebo that contained the adjuvant with the aluminum in it. So as a result, we couldn't determine which adverse events were the result of the vaccine as opposed to the adverse events that were attributed to the adjuvant, the aluminum adjuvant. Uh, so this was scandalous, uh, and, but this is just one little problem, again, with the testing of the vaccine. Uh, it's gotten very, very sort of complex. Um, but yes, we are finding the same thing. We're finding how the testing has been manipulated, how the reporting has been manipulated, and how the regulators have been misled by the industry testing its own products. Well, both of these projects sound super interesting and really looking forward to hearing more about them. (laughs) So where can our listeners find more information about your work, but also uh, the book? Well, the book is sold by a little press in Australia called Wakefield. And the reason why we published it with that press is because uh, we, we found that when we tried to get this book published with a mainstream academic publisher, that, that they were scared off because it was critical mm. of the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, it was a very difficult getting our book published, and it was very difficult getting our papers published. But our papers are mainly published in uh, a journal in the Netherlands called the International Journal of Risk and Safety in Medicine. And it is one of the journals that does not accept pharmaceutical funding. Excellent. Okay, so thank you very much for joining me today. I learned a lot and you really pushed me out of my comfort zone on some of the (laughs) topics. Hopefully (laughs) our listeners and readers are going to really enjoy that part. (laughs) Well, I, I, I must apologize for giving you one more thing to worry about. Oh dear, no, no, no. Don't apologize. It's always good. Okay, then. So thank you very much for joining. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you very much.